0: Hey, Not Past It listeners. This week, we've got a special episode for you from the new season of Conviction. And this time around, they're telling the story of a Harlem rapper, Max B, who's on the cusp of stardom. But his life changes when he hears about an irresistible score worth $40,000. Now, Max, like many other rappers of the time, wrote songs about a life of luxury that he didn't yet have but was determined to get. Through Max B's story, Conviction examines the U.S. justice system and questions who the system works for and who it works against. All episodes are out now, so go take a listen if you haven't already. Not Past It will be back next week with a brand new episode. But until then, here's Conviction, Episode 1, Who's 40 Grand Not Tempting To?
1: is full of fucked up decisions. Cause, effect, chaos. And it starts here, at the Lincoln Playground. The Lincoln Playground lies in New York City between 5th Avenue and Madison Ave, 135th Street. It's right in the heart of Harlem, overlooked by housing projects on each side. Back in the mid-2000s, a guy named Max B came here a lot. Max grew up in the neighborhood, and he comes to the park to drink, talk shit, and watch the local kids play basketball. But in the summer of 2006, people had their eyes on Max B. See, Max was a rapper, and in Harlem, he'd become a hood celebrity. His face was on thousands of Bootleg CDs that were bought and sold and they were passed around in barbershops and on street corners. I was in college at the time. I remember buying Max's tapes, falling in love with his sound. We all thought Max B was the next big thing, that he was gonna be a star, but that's not what happened because a different kind of opportunity was headed Max's way. Something that persuaded him to risk his music career and his freedom to plan a robbery. On the night of September 21st, 2006, Max was hanging out at the Lincoln playground and he heard about a score. The way things lined up, it all seemed too easy. Max was told that inside an empty hotel room in New Jersey, there was a Louis Vuitton bag stuffed with cash. It's a simple robbery, in and out. No one needs to get hurt. And there was something else that made this score seem perfect. Max wouldn't even need to do anything himself. Instead, he sent someone else to go and get the bag for him. The plan was flawless. All Max had to do was sit back and wait for the money to arrive. But of course, it didn't go down like that. What did go down was a night of mayhem and a plan that wasn't meant to turn violent got badly out of hand and left a man dead inside a New Jersey hotel room.
2: The first count of the indictment alleges the crime of murder, and specifically...
1: Max B. wasn't anywhere near the robbery when it happened, but it was his plan, and he was held accountable.
2: Max B. did murder David Taylor, and I think more specifically the
1: He was charged with conspiracy to commit robbery, kidnapping, and felony murder. And at the end of the trial that grabbed headlines and went down in hip-hop history, Max B was sentenced to 75 years in prison. He was 28 years old at the time of the verdict, and it looked likely that he'd die behind bars.
3: You know like when your heart just go like this and it sinks inside of your chest? To hear that he caught 75 years, it was just like somebody saying, you don't have nothing now, you know?
2: They're they trying to own your coffin. They don't, want, they don't want to see you die in jail. They
4: want, to, they want to have your tombstone in there. I seen 70 years or whatever it was, I'm like, God damn. I'm about to smoke my boy boots.
1: I remember this whole thing unfolding. I read about it online, talked about it in group chats and dissected it with my friends. No one seemed to know how so much could go so wrong. I've been a hip-hop journalist for about 10 years now. And in that time, I've thought about Max B's story a lot. I've always wanted to know what really happened that night. Why did someone with so much talent, so much potential, risk it all for a bag full of cash? And if Max wasn't there the night of the robbery, How the fuck did he get 75 years? My name is Brandon Jenkins, and this is a Conviction of Max B. Part 1. Who is 40 grand not tempting to? Hey, Charlie.
5: What's up, Dave? How you doing, beloved? Hey. I'm this good. is
1: my producer, David Fox, good. talking to Charlie Wingate,
5: also known as Max B, Max Bigavelli, Harlem Band, Harlem Bread, born and raised, doing and through.
1: Max is calling from Bayside State hey, Prison Max, in New Jersey.
5: Good, man, Just came from the yard getting that morning, that morning bar. You heard getting the morning pull-ups. In.
1: This recording is from our first conversation with Max, and he took us back to the start before that Louis Vuitton bag, stuff with cash changed everything, to when he was a kid growing up in the Lincoln Projects.
5: I grew up on a a real rough street. My block was rough. I grew up in that crack era, man, so I seen a lot. My mom was addicted to drugs. My dad was addicted to drugs. My aunts was addicted to drugs. Everybody that was raising me was addicted to drugs. So crack, coke, dope, violence, you know what I'm saying?
1: There's no doubt Max came up hard, but he still talks about his childhood with fondness. As a kid, he loved comic books and superheroes. He loved music, too, and sang in the local boys' choir. And when he got a little older, he started to develop other interests.
5: I was just a typical young dude coming up, man. I like girls. I like going out. I like getting fly. I like smoking weed, chilling with my dudes and shit.
1: (laughs) That laugh. Max B.'s laugh is kind of his signature. Talk to anyone about Max, and they'll tell you about his laugh.
3: He loved to. <laughs> <laughs> he just loves to laugh. Everything just made him laugh. He was just so full of laughter.
1: This is Lisa Overton, Max's auntie. When he was growing up, Max's mother wasn't always around. So he and Lisa were close. She tried to look out for him. And Lisa remembers this conversation they had when he was a teenager. She worried that her nephew lacked direction, and she wanted to know what he was going to do with his life.
3: We had a big round table, and we were all sitting there eating dinner. And it was like, okay, boy, what you going to do with yourself now? You just want to be all over the place. Tell me what you going to do. You got a plan? He said, plain and simple, yes, I'm going to be a rapper. I'm going to be a famous rapper. And I was like, oh, here we go with this silliness again. (laughs) (laughs) He says, I'm going to bring it. I'm going to bring a new type of rap that is going to match the culture. And he was like, "Okay, if you say so, son. I mean.
6: Did did you you take it seriously? No,
3: not at all. I didn't. I didn't at all because it's like, you know, your kids tell you one minute they want to be this and then they want to be that.
1: Lisa was right. Max didn't go out in his teens and become a famous rapper. Instead, he started getting into trouble.
5: I got a little older. I started wowing a little bit. I was getting caught up. The guys I was with, you know, we was running around robbing stores and shit, acting crazy. And I was just young and stupid. I did stupid shit. And, you know, I got caught up.
1: The thing that Max got caught up in was a robbery. And when he was 18 years old, he went to prison for eight years. While he was inside, Max's dream of becoming a rapper resurfaced. But this time, it wasn't just talk. He started to write, started to fill notepads with his observations on life in the street and life in prison.
5: When I started writing verses and shit, and shit started coming out like songs. It's just something I kept, kept doing and stuck with it. And, and then there's something I love doing, Realized I was great at it. So that kind of like helped me pass time, you know what I'm saying? The way I used to write, it used to help me kill time. I used to find to put a whole song on the page. So it was like, it started looking like art to me, you know what I'm saying? So that was it, you know? That's how I
1: started. At first, rapping was a form of therapy. But later, Max started to think, I can do this, I can be a rapper. It was during this time Max created his stage name. It was an amalgamation of the three greatest rappers to ever touch a mic. The Notorious B.I.G., a.k.a. Biggie, Jay-Z, a.k.a. Jigga, and Tupac, a.k.a. Machiavelli. He went into prison as Charlie Wingate, but he came out as Max Bigavelli, or for short, Max B. By the time he got out in 2005, Max had already missed a good chunk of his 20s, and he didn't want to miss any more. Hip-hop seemed like his best shot at making something of himself. But it wasn't going to be easy. Far from it.
5: When I went home, I had to plan to get into the business. I didn't know anybody. I didn't have no connections. So it was kind of frustrating, and I almost went back to the streets when I came home. You know what I'm saying?
1: Max needed someone to help him get his foot in the door. Someone with connections. So he hit up an old friend from the neighborhood, Mike Bruno.
2: So when he came home, he was always telling me like, yo, man, I'm going to make you rich. I'm nice. I'm nice, man.
1: Mike knew people in the music industry, and Max kept telling him he wanted to be a rapper now. But Mike was skeptical.
2: I couldn't believe it knowing Charlie to be a jokester, a comedian. I couldn't really correlate the two being the same. You understand what I'm saying? So when Max was telling me that, I'm like, okay, okay, good. But, you know, I'm not brushing them off because that's my friend. But it just went through one ear and out the other.
1: Max knew he was going to have to put in work to convince Mike Bruno, and everyone else, that he was serious about rap. So Max took his notepad full of lyrics, recorded some demos, got them burned into a CD, and brought them to Mike.
2: He was pressuring me for about maybe two weeks. Did you listen to it? You know, we we'll always smoke. I might give him a couple dollars to see him later or something like that. we we'll always smoke. You listen to it? Nah, no, I ain't listen to it, Max. So one day we was chilling, smoking. Me and my friend, we was on the corner right there, 40th, and Max came through. it was like, I got this CD, man. You need to listen to it. He like, nah, you my man, and you got that swag. You got that aura. Us together, we'll take over the world, man. Listen to it, man. I'm going to make you rich.
1: Max was persistent. He just wouldn't let up. And eventually, Mike figured, fuck it. Let me see what he can do.
2: So I threw the CD in the car. I was blown away. I was amazed. Like, my antennas went off. I was like, oh my God. Like this kid here is like special like for real it, it kind of took my breath away like yo this kid really talented and the more and more I start hearing him before I really said you know what I'm gonna present it to somebody and see where we could take this I just fell in love with his music and I realized he was a really a musical genius
6: out, out, out,
2: out. hooks rhymes can write r and b like he just was very
6: talented
1: At last, Mike took Max seriously. He decided that he was going to introduce him to a rap crew, one that dominated the airwaves and dictated rap culture in the mid-2000s. That crew was called Dipset.
6: Dipset. Come on.
0: Blackout. Let's do it. Dipset, for me personally, was like, they were like, to me, Harlem's boy band.
1: Marissa Mendez. Marissa's a music journalist now, but back in Dipset's heyday, she was a fan.
0: I really was a huge fan of them, and I had been a boy band kid. So to transition, then Dipset was just like, nah, these guys are it. They, They had the fashion, and they had the music, and they had the swag and the fun.
1: Dipset's debut album, Diplomatic Immunity, went gold. They were more than just hood stars. People everywhere listened to their music, including me in my bedroom in New Jersey. Dipset had crossed over into the mainstream.
0: You could see their influence everywhere. <laughs>
1: but it wasn't just about the music. Dipset had an aesthetic. Oversized jeans, triple XL sports jerseys, Air Force Ones, bandanas, fitted caps with brims so low you couldn't see anyone's eyebrows. And of course, the whole crew is iced out. All of the Dipset members had the same chain with a massive diamond-studded medallion. A bald eagle with its wings spread out wide and its talons holding two guns. If you were in Dipset, you got this chain. I used to be obsessed with that chain. Having one seemed like the rap equivalent of becoming a made man. But I wasn't the only one. Max B wanted in, too. He wanted the fame the adulation, in that eagle chain. And it turns out, Mike Bruno knew someone who could make an introduction and get Max next to Dipset.
6: Well, I first heard about him, I I guess my man, Mike Bruno, he went to, me and Mike Bruno went to high school together. Me Mike Bruno, Jim Jones, we went to high school, same high school, and he brought him around. This is Duke to God. From the legendary crew to Dipset, Diplomat Records, you know, A&R, producer, artist, Everything, the whole package. Duke says that when
1: Max first started coming around and hanging out in the studio with Dipset, he stood out.
6: Like, who is this new kid? Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, he's doing things that's, like, different.
1: First off, Max B had a look that was different. He had long hair that he'd straightened and wore slicked slick back, pencil-thin mustache, and he wore tank tops, huge sunglasses, and baggy jeans. He looked like a throwback, like a 70s pimp, but hip-hop. And then there was a sound. That was different too.
6: Black,
1: Max could rap, go bar for bar with anyone in Dipset, but when it came to the hooks, his voice would suddenly change, and those gravelly, punchy raps would vanish, and Max B would burst into song. I shit on
6: you, you you hit on me I put my in
1: the first time a bigger audience heard Max's unique sound was on a song called baby girl that dropped in July of
4: 2005 pass, we
6: them big uh. the song was
1: the songs by Jim Jones. One of Dipset's key members, but Max stole the show when he delivered the chorus. "Baby Girl" was a big hit and got a lot of radio play that summer. Max was now a Dipset affiliate, and people were starting to pay attention.
6: Nobody was singing on songs, you know what I'm saying? And 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 with the melodies and, and 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 doing that, nobody was really moving like that. So it was just different, you know? what I mean, you know, it was just some some different a different vibe, like like what is this? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Duke's right. Back
1: then, no one was singing, and definitely no one in Dipset. That would be Max's secret weapon, the thing that made his sound stand out. But not only was the singing different, the way Max sang was different, too. Here's Marissa Mendez talking to my producer, Matt Nelson.
6: Does, does Max be singing though? No.
0: No, not really. <laughs> and I think that's what made it Dope, because how could this not be in tune, but yet sound so good, you know? And, like, he had real hood dudes crooning these things that he's crooning, you know? And he was not a good—he wasn't great at it, but it just—I think it was that aura. The same way that it, it shines in person, it shined on mu- in music, too. It was just something about it.
1: A guy coming out of prison and trying to reinvent himself as a rapper is kind of a cliche, a hip-hop trope. But for Max, it looked like it might actually happen. His sound wasn't for everyone, but it was unique. Max didn't sound like anyone else, and no one sounded anything like Max B. Marissa Mendez met Max not long after he started being featured on Dipset Records. The pair became friends. And Marissa explained that, as she got to know him, she saw how much Max was enjoying his second chance after getting out of prison.
0: And he just was always in his own world. He would always have his shades on and he was just always happy. And like, you could just tell this man was so happy to be there and so happy to be like living this new life that he had come into. And he was going to take everything, like take every moment for what it is and really like be in the moment and really live it up. And I can definitely say that Max did not miss a moment to live his life at all. (laughs)
1: There's this famous line in The Godfather Part Three. Even if you haven't seen the movie, you probably know it. Al Pacino's character, the crime boss Michael Corleone, has been trying to go legit, but it just never works. And he says, just when I thought I was out, they pull me back in. At this moment, Max looked like he was out, but something was about to pull him back in. That's after the break. I want to tell you about how a Louis Vuitton bag stuffed with cash entered Maxby's world and set in motion a freight train of fucked up decisions. Around early September of 2006, a guy named Alan Plowden gets into his brand new white Mercedes Benz and points it north. Plowden has a long drive ahead of him. From his home in North Miami to New York City, it's about 20 hours. A ride that winds through eight states, over 1,000 miles. But really, he has no idea what's ahead of him. Alan Plowden is a con man. He runs a phony mortgage game. It's not the crime of the century, but it works. On the drive north, he picks up his partner, David Taylor. The plan is to get to New York, keep the con going, and have a little fun while they're at it. So they snake their way up the East Coast. Until finally, the New York skyline rears up in front of them. When he gets to the city, Plowden starts withdrawing cash from ATM machines, the proceeds of the mortgage scam. He's got about 40 grand on him. He stuffed it into his black Louis Vuitton bag, the bag that's at the center of this story. Then Plowden and Taylor buy a BMW and they go to a body shop to get their cars tricked out. After that, they head to Harlem. And Alan Plowden goes to a Golden Crust, a chain of restaurants that serve Caribbean food. Across the street, Plowden sees a woman. Pay attention to her, she's going to be very important. This woman is waiting around, and she's alone. after he's done eating, Alan Plowden approaches her and introduces himself. Her name is Gina Conway. But here's the thing Plowden doesn't know. Gina Conway has a boyfriend, and his name is Max B. And Max is about to find out all about Alan Plowden and his bag full of money. One of the things that gets people about this story is why someone on the cusp of fame would ever get involved in a robbery to steal a bag of cash? If you're affiliated with Dipset, why do that? Well, the truth is, in the early part of his music career, it appears that the money wasn't rolling in for Max B. Back in the mid-2000s, the music industry was in a state of flux. CD sales were beginning to decline people were just starting to put music on the internet. By the end of the decade, CDs would be on their way to landfills across America and streaming sites like the one you're listening on now, would be the best way to listen to music. But when Max was getting started in 2005, New York had its own thing going on, its own scene that functioned on the margins of the industry. A space filled with samples that were never cleared, beats that were never licensed, a space that was entirely illegal. The classic hip-hop mixtape.
6: It could be other artists' music, which it is, most likely, but it's your other artists' music mixed with your music. You know what I'm saying? You know, you give it a cover, you know, you talk shit on it, you know what I'm saying, let people know what time it is, where you from, let niggas feel your energy on it. And if you're lucky, people will want to buy it.
1: Duke the God. Duke sold a lot of Max B's mixtapes. Max B may have been a Dipset affiliate, and he appeared on a few of their songs. But he never had a real record contract. A real deal with a major player like Atlantic or Interscope or Columbia. So this was how he had to put out most of his music, the shadow industry, where songs were recorded over other people's beats, CDs were burned, and then distributed across the country, hand to hand.
4: You go to like a kind of like a hood record store, like that, you know, Some maybe some bodegas had tapes, but mostly it was just guys with backpacks.
1: Hip-hop journalist Angel Diaz. For what it's worth, I bought my mixtapes the same way as Angel did. Two for five bucks out of some dude's backpack.
4: And they would just, you know, walk around and go into, like, the barbershops. It was essentially the barbershops is where you was getting the mixtapes at during this time. Because guys would just have, like, backpacks full of, like, they'll have that, they'll have, like, the, the Lox mixtapes, the Max B, the, the Jim Jones, all this shit. Um, and they'll have porns, right? And they'll have, like, uh... They'll have uh, movies, too, and shit like that.
1: Max originally started appearing on the mixtape scene as part of a group called Bird Gang, a group of Dipset-affiliated rappers and producers. In 2006, he dropped his debut mixtape, Million Dollar Baby. The cover art features Max with $100 bills, cascading around him. He's wearing a diamond-studded chain and throwing up a gang sign. Money and bling was a reoccurring motif on the record. Song titles included Getting This Money, Gotta Love The Way We Floss, and the title track, Million Dollar Baby.
6: baby. baby.
1: But the trouble was, even though Max was rapping about money, that didn't mean he was making any. Because that was the thing with mixtapes. They can make you hot, but they won't make you rich. The reason was simple. The people who made money off the tapes weren't the ones who made the tapes. It was whoever sold them.
6: Do you, but do you divide the, the money you get with the artist, or you basically nah, you just nah, keep it? Nah, nah, nah,
1: My producer Matt Nelson, with Duke the God.
6: It wasn't about us making revenue... And me having to pay the artists for the mixtape—I don't. That was—that would have been crazy.
1: So for every five dollars that a fan shelled out for a copy of the latest Max B tape, guys like Duke would pocket the cash. Max wouldn't get a cent. That's just the way it was. For an artist, the best outcome on a mixtape was to catch a buzz, and then if you were lucky, you could convert that buzz into cash by playing shows, being featured on another artist's record or maybe even getting a deal with a major label. But the truth was that even though the cover art of Max B's mixtapes projected an image of wealth and power, the reality was very different. Chris Luck saw that disconnect firsthand. Back in the mid-2000s, Chris was an A&R for Dipset. And when he heard about Max B, the rapper with the croaky voice who sang his own hooks, he was intrigued.
4: He had music out musically before I got over there. But Max, it was like he was new on the scene and not a lot of people really knew who he even was. But me, I'm one of those people. Who's that guy on the hook? Who's the guy on the, you I mean? I'm trying mm-hmm. to figure out who these different people are. So, and one of my main things was like, yo, where's this guy Max B? I don't ever see this, this guy Max B. I haven't, you I mean?
1: Eventually, Chris got the chance to meet Max. And the guy he expected to meet was a figure from the cover of the Million Dollar Baby mixtape. The Hustler. Flush with cash. That didn't happen.
4: I remember I met Max one night, and this was like <laughs> this was like a rude awakening for me because it was right on the side of uh, Madison Square Garden, and I had to meet him somewhere, and they pulled up in like an old Honda Prelude. <laughs>
0: <laughs> really? Like a
4: red two-door Honda Prelude, something like that. Mm-hmm. And that was like a awakening for me. You know I'm expecting him to pull up in the Benz or BMW or something. <laughs> is it is it a shitty car? Is it fair to say? Uh, I ain't gonna say it's a shitty car but it's a regular hood you gonna see that coming down any block of, you're not even gonna see that coming down any block at home cause people drive some real cars out there so it's like you like, yeah it's a shitty car if you wanna put it to the stairs. so that was the rude awakening at first like I saw the difference kind of between him and Jim like Jim really had it Max wasn't there just yet you feel me
1: Chris is talking about Jim Jones, the rapper from Dipset. The it that Jim had was a life that matched the one he showed off in the Dipset music videos. His chains were real, he owned a fancy sports car, and by the mid-2000s, Jim Jones was a powerful player in the music industry. Max wanted the same things, so he kept grinding, kept doing shows, stayed in the studio working on his sound. And eventually, around 2006, It was really starting to happen for him. That summer, Max appeared on another mixtape, M.O.B., Members of Bird Gang. On the cover, he's next to Jim Jones. Jim has a fat chain around his neck, and Max has Gucci shades on. Song titles included Superstars, Money on My Mind, and We Fly High. By this point, Max is starting to gain more notoriety, and his music is spreading from the bodegas and barbershops in New York and New Jersey. It's moving across the country, state to state. And Max is on the move too. He starts playing live shows across the U.S. It's at one of these shows in North Carolina that Max B. meets a woman. Her name is Gina Conway. Max and Gina hit it off. They hit it off so well that she leaves her life in North Carolina to be with Max in New York. Later, Gina's going to be a key player in the robbery. But for now, the point is that Max is on the rise, and people are paying attention.
3: I remember looking on the internet. My sister said, did you see your nephew? I said, no.
1: Lisa Overton, Max's auntie.
3: And so the kids were like, yeah, Mom, everybody know who he is? And and then I said, okay, everybody know who he is. That's fine. And they had all of his songs and stuff, right? On the corner where I lived at, in the record shop. They had had all his songs. I was like, okay, well.
1: Lisa was proud of her nephew. He wasn't top of the Billboard charts yet, but he'd done all the shit he said he'd do all those years ago at her dinner table. He was now making a career for himself in music. And more importantly, he'd stayed out of trouble. A little while later, Lisa decided to pay her nephew a visit. And this time when Max pulled up, he wasn't rolling around in a shitty Honda Prelude.
3: It was a lot of change. It was a lot of change from the outside as well as from the inside. And when I saw him with these big uh, Gucci glasses on and this billion dollar belt with all of this glitter in it and all of these stones and him with a, uh, he, he was the first person that taught me what a Beamer was. He was like, come on auntie, I want to take you for a ride in my Beamer, which is a BMW. The car was black on black. It was like the Night Rider, and when you got in, it lit up, and it had all the functions to it, and nobody had a car like that, so it was like, ooh, look at my nephew. Everything, the lighting, um, he had the panel, it had all kind of buttons and a screen, you know, stuff that we never seen before. And so he had everything inside of this car, and I was excited for him, you know? I was happy that he was happy.
1: Lisa had watched Max grow up, watched him fuck up, too. Go away for eight years for robbery when he was just a kid. So this was a big moment. She was proud. But Lisa was worried, too. Worried that despite the flashy cars and the jewels, Max wasn't far away from another fuck up.
3: When he drove me to the Goon Squad, I was like, that made me like, okay. That The goon squad where you just have all of these fake friends and hang around buddies and can I get a blunt? And when I saw that, I was like, oh, I got nervous. I was like, oh, my gosh, what's going to happen with my baby? Because you know what that come with all of that stuff, you know? Not everybody is bad, but not everybody is good. And when you start going up, the very people you're around, them the ones who hate you. They just know how to secretly do it. You know, they know how to pretend. But like I said, when we got, when he pulled up and I saw all of those homeboys and I was like, oh God, please, Lord, have mercy on my nephew.
1: Lisa says that after meeting Max's friends, they kept driving.
3: And he took me to Papa's and he got me a big box of chicken to take upstairs. He said, I'm I'm coming right back. And I never saw him no more after that. He said, I'm going to pick up some money. I got to go get some money and um, I'll be back to you. But, you know, things happened and I never saw him no more after that. So.
1: Lisa didn't see her nephew again because a couple of months after they drove around Harlem together, Max got into trouble, big trouble. Alan Plowden and David Taylor arrived in the neighborhood and Plowden had that Louis Vuitton bag stuffed with cash. Next, Max's girlfriend, Gina Conway, told him all about that bag. And that night, on September 21st in the Lincoln Playground, Max B decided that the bundles of cash were just too tempting. And he had to get his hands on that money.
4: 40 grand? Who's 40 grand not tempting to? How much money do you have to have for 40 grand to not be tempting to you?
1: And from there, everything went to shit.
5: He was just walking around with a bag full of money.
1: And then Charlie told you to go with Sims to go rob Jay.
2: Is that what, in essence, what he told you?
6: Yes. I said, Dave, bring the money. Bring the money. Bring the money.
1: Next time on The Conviction of Max B, a bad plan, a botched robbery, and a dead body. The Conviction of Max B is a Spotify original podcast and Gimlet production. This episode is produced by Heather Rogers and Matthew Nelson. Our producers are Aliyah Yates, David Fox, Chris Neary, Anna Chin, and Matilde Urfelino. Our supervising producer is Matthew Nelson. Our editor is Brendan Klinkenberg. Additional editing by Caitlin Kinney. Additional reporting and editing by Elias Light. Fact checking by Nicole Pasolka. Original music, scoring, sound design, and mixing by Katherine Anderson. Additional engineering and original music by Lonnie Rowe. Music supervision by Liz Fulton. Special thanks to Meg Driscoll. All of the episodes of this season of Conviction are available now. You'll find the next episode on the Conviction show page. Hit follow so you don't miss any bonus content. My name is Brandon Jenkins. I'll see you next episode.